Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk live, in the flesh. We are. I'm in, your, f- I'm in your little office. Yeah. It's the first time we've recorded together in the same room. How long have you lived here? Uh, almost two years, I think. This room's a mess. What's the room where everything goes? Everyone has the room where everything goes. Actually, I don't have my basement. <laughs> yeah. It's just mine is hidden from the sun. There's <laughs> just loose cables. Yeah, so I, are your cables? I basically I set this up to work from home from like the first day mm. that I was working from home and then never bothered to like streamline it at all. It's just, it's all jury rigs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, first time recording in person since February last year? February last year. Ridiculous. Wow. That is weird. That is really weird. Like, I walked here today, and that's the furthest I've walked across Walthamstow since February last year as well, probably. Or probably earlier than that, probably like January or maybe even around Christmas. But is it possible to develop social anxiety disorder? (laughs) Like, just weird being around that many people. It's agoraphobic. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is possible. Like, I made sure, like, just because of the way that I like, just because of the way I live my life... Mm got a certain lifestyle that requires me to be around a lot of people no um just because the way like i do my shopping and that yeah is that i have been around crowds mm. for for the entire time like at least once a week yeah. i've been around crowds and like i commute into work anyway usually so like i have i don't have that but i think you can definitely develop it especially if you've been worried about covid and been have been kind of like casually isolating <laughs> well yeah i was like isolates casual because i was quite lucky like right at the beginning i managed to get on the list for the like for the Sainsbury's for the deliveries. Oh right. I don't know how I got on the list while everyone else everyone else I knew was having problems, but so I had that sorted. So there was no reason for me to go out apart from to walk the dog in the forest. And you're never around that many people in there. Mm. But like today, like also the difference in the social distancing between people in Walthamstow Village and people in the rest of Walthamstow, mm. like they were distancing better at the overcrowded bus stop by Blackhawks Road Station than they were outside the pubs in Walthamstow. And not to be, like, telling people off for how they're distancing, but those people in the village are people telling people off for how they're distancing. <laughs> I've seen them on the group chats. But yeah, it's weird. Mm. It's weird to be out and about around buildings. I think I prefer the forest. <laughs> yeah. Next week we'll be recording underneath an oak tree. (laughs) Inside an oak tree. A haunted oak tree. Yeah. We'll find one. Well, there is a tree that um, I... There is a tree that I think is particularly special in the woods where I saw an owl at like seven in the morning. Nice. So I think that's a good tree. An owl or a spirit of the forest? Well, it could have been Solus. I was thinking... I was literally thinking about him the night before and then saw it. So he didn't have a crown though. Mm. Mm. I'm going sort of mad with... um, Post-COVID advertising, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I got, like... Because those billboards. I saw these billboards that were like, um, a, a film goes with a snog, a, 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 an IPA goes with a burger. It's horrible. It's like adverts that, sa- that sounds like the right kind of thing, because the adverts that are welcoming you back to society are feel horribly dystopian yes there's one there's like an o2 advert coming on at the moment which is like it's just people getting dressed and heading blinking into the glorious dawn <laughs> and it's so fucking off point because it's like do you think people i mean yeah okay people haven't been going out and socializing sure but do you think that like that's 
Look. It feels very guided behaviour. It feels very like now's the time, very roaring 20s. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of like constructed that. Like that first flight to Portugal, which seemed to be predominantly full of journalists talking about the first flight to Portugal. <laughs> there were so many of them, and you could see other journalists being filmed by the current, like in the background. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck? And they're like, everyone wants to go on holiday or see their go, go sort out their second home. Their second home. Well, of course. Yes. Everybody does. Everybody's got a second home. I don't know. I saw a, vi- a video of a big fight in an airport, so nature yeah. is healing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it at Luton Airport? I think it was at Luton Airport. It feels like it would be at Luton Airport. How did you know? <laughs> well, it's like Luton or Stan said, those little ones are really aggravating. All of them are aggravating. But it's less security, so things can kick off more. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't I don't like the... There's a very much... They're conf- all the advertising that's conflating... The excitement that people are genuinely feeling for their lives starting again and being able to see their friends mm. with you're all going to be getting on the tube and going back to work again. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't office culture the greatest culture that the world has ever created? <laughs> Nick Ferrari goes on about it a lot. A lot, a lot. <laughs> it's just like, remember how good your lives used to be. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Like, that's not to put a downer on being able to see people again, because it's really nice. It's really nice being able to come over here and see your cat. I don't like... I haven't seen your girlfriend in a year. Yeah. And you live across town as well. Yeah. Do we see... Oh, no, you no, saw... Come you, for the you, yeah, sorry, in summer. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's weird. Like, yeah, it's weird me and you not... Like, especially because we record every week. Mm. And, like, seeing each other all the time. To then suddenly, all I see is you on the screen. And you look way better in person. <laughs> but yeah, so what's your, what have you been? Have you been um, trying to stay off Twitter? I've been trying to stay off Twitter. Mm, I haven't really been trying to stay off. I've been, you know, I don't know what my relationship is to Twitter anymore because, like, there's a few accounts that you follow that are, you know, gen- generally pretty good. Mm. Um, but trying to get a sense of the best thing about Twitter is you get this sense through a sheer mass of numbers what a lot of people are concerned with in. Mm-hmm of people who you followed right that's just like straight logic i guess but i find myself scrolling more and clicking less yeah you know what i mean probably do scroll um because also like my scrolling doesn't like has a purpose now usually it's like coming up with ideas for pods or you know things that are interesting to me yeah yeah there's like there's a couple of people i talk to on dms but like i try and stay away from the rest of it because it's just it's just upsetting me now. But, like, it is funny seeing, like, Tim Shipman back on Twitter to apologise. Oh, I saw that today, yeah. Yeah, um, and when I see a picture of him holding a copy of today's newspaper, I will believe that apology. <laughs> it's just like a red dot near his forehead. <laughs> I'm fine. I am fine. I have to go now. Keir Starmer's marriage is fine. Rock solid. <laughs> but, yeah, in general, it's just like, and especially with what we'll be mainly talking about, like this week, I've been having to try and stay away from the news and away from because it's just like since December we felt powerless. Mm. Since December twenty nineteen, yeah, oh Christ! <laughs> and um, especially since the change of the Labour Party, again, it's like which way do you push? But then when you're watching, when every time you open up a screen, you just see horrors. There's a there's a separation from I mean especially with kind of international events which is is what we're going to talk about this week especially with international events there's always that distance but mm. especially when there's that distance with no 
obvious kind of outlet. Yeah. You know, like there's no there's no place you can go. We talk about this all the time, like the mm. fact that the end of kind of Corbynism has meant that you don't have a an electoral outlet for anything that you might be feeling. But at the same time, like the, like I say, that that sheer mass of, of people, while it might not be reflective of the, the country or the society at large, does help you have an actual idea that people are thinking in the same way you do. Yeah. You know, and are applying perhaps like new logics to the to the situation that you, that you might be thinking of, of as well do you know what i mean yeah. they're not reacting to an old thing they're reacting to each new thing mm-hmm. i don't know i i don't really i shouldn't really sing social media's praises realistically but i've always like i've never engaged i've never engaged on a personal level with it and maybe that's actually a problem maybe it's a bit alienating but mm. I, I, I it doesn't really affect me i i browse public freakout on reddit <laughs> all right it's if I want to see people getting murdered, <laughs> which I apparently do, <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, like mainly I like, 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 like this weekend was like, I was quite lucky because I could quite easily distract myself because I just played Guilty Gear all weekend. Um, oh yeah, you had the beta out, didn't you? Yeah, so I just played that all weekend and went on like Shoryuken forums to look at fight fight stick builds and how to do custom lighting. <laughs> Focusing on that, focusing on things that I can control. See, very much like I will get better at this fighting game, and I will control everything I eat down to the calorie. <laughs> Look, I don't think I'm dealing well with it all, but I have seen a lot of good anime. Um, but yeah, the Labour Party have been pissing me off, but they always do now, and it's trying to. It's weird trying to. I think I've successfully disengaged now. Like. To I think I feel more like 2015, well, 2010. You look younger, Venice. (laughs) You do look exactly five years younger. But like, you know, I know there's no there's no saving it. There's no point in me rejoining to try and do anything positive in that direction. That is the one thing that kind of pisses me off actually about um, scrolling my particular Twitter feed is that it's just the number of people like minutely recording every single thing that happens in in the Labour Party, and it is a habit that people picked up over mm. the last five years. Yeah, but there's there's a lot of oh Labour at it again, which is is fine. It it, it just feels like feeding into hashtag content. Mm. It doesn't feel like it's anything additional in terms of solution Mm. you know yeah yeah so the main thing we want to talk about this week is obviously the thing that we were alluding to earlier Mm -hmm is the um, flare-up of violence in Israel and Palestine. Even yeah. Although I really feels very strange to refer to it as that when you actually look into it and there have been missile strikes on, like, Gaza and the West Bank. Pretty... And, and you know, dispossessions of, of Palestinians, yeah. home demolitions, yeah. pretty much constantly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this week we're going to talk about the confusing situation in the Middle East that is too confusing for anyone to possibly understand. In the Middle East. 
all of it. That's another all that's another it. another like lovely trope that I, I love hearing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this instability in the Middle East, this all oh, this very upsetting situation in the Middle East. When the If only of... we could pinpoint exactly where it was happening, maybe we could do something about it. When all the stuff was happening with Ukraine and mm. Crimea, mm. did they just say things in Europe? They did not say in Central slash Eastern Europe. They didn't. Yeah. They said they literally identified it as Russia and Crimea and Donetsk. Yeah. And Ukraine. Yeah. Well, it's because it's easier to understand. <laughs> it's a lot more complicated in the Middle East. And, you know, they'll go into um, molecular detail about exactly where, you know, um, Rakhine province is in, in Burma, a much less, like, well-known area of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, specifically what kicked it off this time and brought it to the attention of the world's press um, is evictions in East Jerusalem. Yeah. In a neighbourhood called yeah Sheikh Jarrah. Um, East Jerusalem is a, one of the contested areas that has a... The, poli- the actual legal and political history is quite complicated, but not so much that you can't understand that um, what's going on there is what's going on elsewhere in Palestinian territory. Um, yeah. Essentially, in early May, um, a Jerusalem district court ruled that 58 Palestinians who had houses in Sheikh Jarrah had to vacate their homes despite the fact that they've been living there for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, this story is part of the long, long struggle of Palestinians to be recognised as property owners, property owners, not just in, in Palestinian-occupied territories, but in Israel as well. Um, essentially what happened was Israeli settler groups um, started producing um, Ottoman-era documents that they say, uh, that prove a Jewish land fund fund bought the land in the 19th century. Okay. The Israeli court system has accepted these documents as real. Um, there is some historical basis to suggest that, yes, things like that did happen, mm-hmm. but the veracity of these documents um, have only been proved in Israeli court and there has been subsequent challenges to that, which those same courts refuse to hear. The Palestinians involved have even produced land deeds mm-hmm. from the Ottoman era that prove that they do own the land, um, but those have not been recognised by the court. They've not been seen, not been allowed to be seen. Okay. Um, I didn't know about that. All, all I knew about it, the first thing I saw, like, probably like a lot of people, was seeing the seeing the footage with the like the large um, Israeli and the family saying, yeah. Why, you're, ta- you're taking my house. It's like, if I don't do it, someone else will. Yeah, with the New York accent, like the Brooklyn yeah. accent. Just those. You end up seeing those kind of scenes probably... Like once a week mm. on the internet, on mm. online. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of like an, a, an every week thing. This one, however, was preceded by, um, this event particularly was preceded by scenes of like groups of, of Israeli settlers marching through streets saying death to Arabs. Yeah, because it came in, it was like at the same time as, is it Jerusalem Day? Uh, it was yeah. It was like uh, National Defence Day or something like something that. Yeah, some kind they... of memorial day. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happened that kind of as this started to escalate, you saw scenes of um, Israeli military going into the um, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and cutting the uh, loudspeaker for the call to prayer mm-hmm. because there was a speech going on at the base of mm-hmm. the Temple Mount. Um, 
And then, you know, it starts to escalate. There's more and more police actions against Palestinians. Palestinians respond by throwing stones because they don't have anything else. And then you get to this stage, which is now airstrikes on Gaza, airstrike, uh, airstrikes on Gaza, um, kind of uh, rocket attacks from within the Gaza Strip. Um, today there's been some rocket attacks from Lebanon and um, riots in Israeli cities, which is a reasonably new mm. uh, thing with this is Israeli Arabs actually protesting what's going on because frankly I think they know it's that not just Israeli Arabs protesting as well there's been like there was quite a lot of um of Israeli Jews protesting as well yeah yeah but it you know yeah 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 um and yeah so this produced kind of a familiar and yet unique thing which mm. is the internet on Israel Palestine crisis time mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um the israelis uh had an airstrike earlier in the week against the al jazeera and associated press building in gaza yep um where the bbc were yep there was live recordings of exactly how this stuff happens which is uh they get a warning they have to run and then it is bombed israel then later say oh yeah there was a hamas military intelligence cell it's yeah. like well there was a Hamas podcast going on in the basement. <laughs> um, they haven't really, they haven't shown any evidence yet, either, have they? No, they just said it because yeah. that is always the the um, after the fact mm. justification for anything. There was Hamas there, mm. there were tunnels there, there were rockets there. Mm. Those three words apparently justify literally anything. Yeah, and you had a very familiar pattern of uh, labour rightist uh, people online talking about how um, everyone on the left supports Hamas and that Israel has a right to defend itself, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, including this gem from Luke Akehurst uh, mm-hmm. saying it isn't on the Al Jazeera uh, building bombing. It isn't a war crime to destroy an empty building, particularly if you have identified a legitimate military target in it, in this case, a Hamas intelligence facility. Um, yeah, it is. If there, <laughs> is, saw... if there are civilians there... Yes, it is. Didn't, like the official Israeli account said that um, it was a justifiable target because there were Hamas in there. So they, they didn't even say empty building. They literally just essentially justified them. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that if Luke Akehurst thinks that it's justified, do you reckon we can trick him into um, like lobbing a missile at a police car or a small business in my <laughs> multicultural working class community? Because that seems to be his only defences when anything else, when any other instances of violence happen. Yeah. <laughs> but. Um, I just wanted to briefly talk about kind of the, the path that leads us here. There yeah. could, like, the actual full documented history of Israel-Palestine is not a topic yeah. I am keen to recount <laughs> on this podcast or series of podcasts, which is what it would take. Yeah. Wouldn't it be one podcast? I'd need to, like, have guest stars on various other podcasts just to fit it all in. But the idea that an empty building that has a military target inside it and that, therefore, it can be destroyed is... Something that largely sums up the like Israeli attitude towards the Palestinian people, hmm. territory, cause. Alternately suggesting that the Palestinian people don't exist. It's an empty building. Yep. Um, that they have no history, that Palestine never existed. Therefore, any destruction that they wage is, you know, has, has no civilian casualties. Hmm. And at the same time, that Palestinian areas are full of existential danger, that anywhere they exist is a danger to the state of Israel, and it's just full to the brim of, you know, savage barbarians intent on destruction. 
Yeah. Um, so some kind of important dates on just the, the a, a brief whistle stop tour through Israeli Palestinian <laughs> history. Um, the story really starts in 1948, um, which is when the British Mandate of Palestine ends. Mm. Uh, the British had been responsible for the area of Palestine since around, I think, 1918, when they mm. took over from the Ottoman Empire after the Ottoman Empire collapses. Um, over the previous decades to 1948, the British. How did that like when we took over from the Ottoman Empire, was it literally world power saying dibs? One hundred percent. It was. It was the scramble for Africa, but it was all of the territories with the Ottoman Empire. The Britain got Britain got um, Iraq, France got Lebanon and Syria, which is why, if you notice, whenever there's a crisis in Lebanon, like the big port explosion, yeah, who are the who turns up to scold Lebanese leaders? It's Macron. Hmm. When it comes to Iraq, who gets selected to to go in? It's the British. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um. Over the previous decades leading up to 1948, the British had somehow managed to... Now, imagine, if you can, <laughs> that they had done this. So they promised Palestine to a future Jewish homeland. That's the Balfour Declaration. Okay. They had promised Palestine to the Hashemite monarchy, which is, at the time, they were the ones in charge of Mecca and Medina, before okay. the Saudi kingdom was founded. And now, I think, they make up the kingdom of Jordan. Okay. Right? Um, so they promised Palestine to the Hashemite monarchy um, in return for an Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire during World War One. They also simultaneously agreed to divide it up with the French. <laughs> so they've managed to promise it to three different people, including themselves. <laughs> I like that. So, so they they like they had a deal to give it to some people that have a claim there. Give it to, to get another deal to give it to some other people that had a claim there, and then also just with France. Yeah, just, we'll have it. Yeah, we'll have it. (laughs) If it's going. Um, After the British leave, there is a a large war between the nascent Israeli state and Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Transjordan and other Arab states who invade when the founding of Israel is is announced. Long story short, it ends up with Israel having more land than it would have done under a UN-brokered partition deal. That's okay. the, This is known as the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Um, Gaza and the West Bank at the time were taken over by uh, Egypt and Jordan, respectively. Mm-hmm. Gaza is controlled by Egypt and uh, and the West Bank is controlled by what was then Transjordan becomes, becomes Jordan. Um, Around 78% of original Palestinian land um, and about 750,000 Palestinians are removed from the state of Israel. Um, later, Israeli histori- later Israeli historians would try to argue that they were told to leave by Arab leaders on the eve of the war. Um, and that, you know, to, in, in, to stay out of the war zone and in expectation of a quick Arab victory. Yeah. Um, of course, the insinuation here is that Israel's not responsible for Palestinian refugees, along with the insinuation that they kind of forfeited their homes by betting on the losing side. Yeah. Um, this claim has been debunked numerous times over the decades. There's about about five percent, apparently, of Palestinian refugees actually moved because Arab armies told them to. Yeah. Um, these Palestinian refugees mainly moved to uh, the West Bank and Gaza and moved to other countries as well, where they often stayed in refugee camps. Um, one of the countries, Jordan, offered them uh, citizenship status, 
but also incorporated the West Bank into the country and actually banned the word Palestine from <laughs> their kind of lexicon. But obviously, no, they've just left their houses, most of them still holding the keys to their houses. Yeah. Uh, they expected at some point to be able to, to go back. Um, but unfortunately, it was, it was kind of this, this, this fiction that the Palestinian people had kind of abandoned themselves was necessary for the Israeli state in order to believe that it inherited a, a land empty of people. Hmm. You know, that the people who were there, they had dispossessed themselves. Um, and this was confirmed in, later in 1948. Um, Israel conducted a census and passed the Law for the Property of Absentees, which said that all property not occupied during the census was forfeit. Um, Palestinians, both those who had evacuated the non-Israeli areas and even those who had been displaced but remained inside the State of Israel um, and actually had become Israeli citizens, mm. they lost their property. There was no... Because they weren't there. Because they weren't there. They were, if they weren't in your exact house, even if you stayed in Israel, even yeah. if you weren't in your exact house, your property was forfeit. Um, the next kind of whistle-stop date, 1967... Uh, this is what's called the Six-Day War. Um, again, long story short, Israel ends up gaining control of the West Bank, previously held by Jordan, and Gaza, previously held by Egypt, as well as the Golan Heights from Syria and the Sinai Peninsula. That huge bit of land in between Egypt and Israel, it's mostly yeah. empty, but um, the conquest of Gaza and the West Bank displaced around 400,000 Palestinians, uh, around 100,000 of whom were themselves refugees who had fled the 1948 war. Um, so you now have a an, an expanded Israeli state with land that is holding under occupation, which has a specific legal meaning in international mm. law. Um, you're not allowed to dispossess people of property. You're not allowed to herd them to new areas. You're not allowed to exile them. Various things like that when you are holding an area that is not yours, not your state's, under um, military occupation. Um the kind of affirmed legal position of the UN, um, which brokered the kind of uh, peace at the end of the Six Day War, was summed up in the Convention 242. In regards to Israel-Palestine, um, it affirms, first off, that states, you can't just take territory through war. Hmm. You can't just take that. This isn't yeah. the 19th century. Um, and specifically... We all had a whale of a time doing it in the <laughs> olden days, but we can't look, do it look, anymore. you had your fun. <laughs> well, we did. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, it also demanded specifically that Israel should withdraw its forces from all the territory occupied in 1967 in exchange for a formalised peace deal with its neighbour states. Um, it was This was kind of, I guess, like that's the current legal position of the world community, such as it is. Mm. All of these kind of legal agreements are still in force, but they've sort of atrophied with time, which is, I think, what this, the Israeli state depended on yeah. you know it, it's very real politique it doesn't put much store by international law because time and time again it, it stuff to actually hold it accountable gets vetoed yeah. it gets vetoed by the US it gets vetoed by Britain you know um, the only other kind of thing that came close to it was the 2003 um, roadmap to peace which was like a Bush era mm -hmm. thing with something like the Middle East Quartet which was Blair Bush I think Jordan and Egypt um, I might be wrong there um, was that when the Jordanian leader was the guy who was in Star Trek Next Generation? No, that's the Sultan of Brunei. That was the son of the Sultan of Brunei. There was a Jordanian prince in Star Trek Next Generation. 
Oh, no, my mistake. Okay, so uh, Abdullah II of Jordan, um, who was the crown prince at the time, appeared in, briefly appeared in an episode of Voyager. Oh, oh. Barely God. even counts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, carry on. Middle East Quartet. <laughs> um, this, it's barely worth covering that because it was essentially a Bush era thing of you have to dismantle Hamas and then maybe we'll talk about freezing settlements. Neither happened. Yeah. It was bollocks. Um, but the Israeli state wasn't uh, wasn't idle between 1967 and uh, early 1990s. It revoked the residencies of an additional 250,000 Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza who had left the territories for an extended period of time. So essentially, if you left, mm-hmm. you were no longer considered to have a have Palestinian citizenship. Um, the closest that they actually came, you know, the the quartet for peace uh, aside was the Oslo agreements in the early 90s. These were kind of, these essentially formalised the way that the um, political kind of solutions to the Israeli-Palestine conflict have been been termed since. Um, They were negotiations between the PLO that's Yasser Arafat's organisation now called Fatah um, and the Israeli state Yitzhak Rabin was the Prime Minister Um, the outcome was it essentially divided the uh, the West Bank into three areas. The West Bank is the large area, kind of if you're looking at a map on the right, bordering Jordan. Actually, the River Jordan is the kind of is at the back of it. Um, it divided the West Bank into three areas: areas A and B, where the Palestinian Authority, which was going to be made up of the basically the structure of the PLO, um, they either had full sovereignty or partial sovereignty, um, but they did conduct security operations in conjunction with the IDF, basically meaning that the IDF can enter areas A and B at any time in cooperation with the with Fatah, with the PLO. Um, and the other area was Area C. Uh, that's the largest area in the West Bank that contains 60% of the land. And if you look at a map, Area C, uh, which is still largely in Israeli sovereignty, um, they have planning powers, they have full military and law enforcement powers in these areas, it snakes through a number of different islands mm-hmm. that make up area A and B. Okay. So the, the Palestinian Authority is in charge of isolated islands with roads of territory still controlled by the Israelis. There's around 165 separate enclaves made up of area A and B that are surrounded by area C. Huh. Um, Israel maintain, yeah, as I say, Israel maintains exclusive control over law enforcement, planning and construction. Um, 99% of Area C is either partially or completely off-limits to Palestinian construction, meaning that the vast majority of Palestinian-built structures there are illegal, and therefore they're open to demolition at any time by Israeli authorities. According to the Oslo Agreements, Israel was supposed to hand over full control to the Palestinian Authority uh, of Area C uh, within five years. Yeah, that never happened. (laughs) It just straight up didn't happen. Um, In the same time, the Israeli settler population in Area C exploded, from around 1,000 in 1972 to around 385,000 the late 2010s. Um, in the 2020 alone, they, uh, Israel demolished 848 Palestinian residential and livelihood structures in the occupied West Bank, saying that they were built without permits, which, as mentioned, they were almost impossible for Palestinians to obtain. And there are at least 593 Israeli checkpoints and roadblocks in the West Bank that restrict the movement of Palestinians and access to kind of water, health, education, work, 
Even more egregious is that holders of Palestinian identification cards in these areas face an ongoing bar on using roads built for Israeli settlers. So the Israeli state has built roads, built infrastructure, and then specifically gated it off from Palestinian people in the area, who I believe there are around 300,000 still in Area C. Um, Even worse is the situation in Gaza. Obviously, that is the thing that everyone talks about whenever there is an Israel-Palestine issue. Um, It was occupied directly until 2005. Um, Israel withdrew troops in 2005 saying it was ending the occupation. Um, it still maintains full control over all of its borders, all of its airspace. It even uh, maintains control over its maritime border across the sea. So if the Palestinians can't fish. Yeah, well there was that thing villages. a while ago where there was like a there was like an aid boat, wasn't there? there was oh yeah, the flotilla. Yeah. That the, was the, like the 2008 idea. or something, wasn't yeah, it? The, yeah. the IDF like attacked... They boarded the they, they boarded, boarded the boat in the middle of yeah. the Mediterranean. I think yeah. as it came past Cyprus, yeah. which is not their waters at all. Mm. No one gives a shit. No, no one gives a shit. Um, it's very complicated in the Middle East. It's very complicated in the Middle East. <laughs> um, Gaza is, has been described as an open air prison, which, mm. from looking at it, doesn't seem to be too inaccurate. It's the third most densely populated area in the world. It has a population of around 2 million Palestinians, uh, all crowded into an area that's slightly smaller than the Isle of Man. Um, as I said, it's blockaded by sea, air and land by Egypt uh, and by Israel. Egypt. Oh. Uh, it, it has an Egyptian border. Um, if you remember a few years ago, there was that whole thing about Hamas tunnels going mm. to Egypt because it was literally the only way you could bring in uh, supplies. It has one power plant, it needs fuel, it needs, you know, you need raw materials, you Mm. need food, medicine. Those tunnels were bringing it in and the Israelis essentially browbeat Egypt into shutting the tunnels down. Um, 38% of the population of Gaza live in poverty, 90% of the water is undrinkable, 35% of its farmland and 85% of its fishing waters are inaccessible because of military action, Mm. because of the blockade. Um, But don't worry, because... uh, It's a real tragic situation all around for both sides. According to one fucking infographic I saw on the Vox website, quote, the density matters for the current conflict because it makes it very hard for Israel to bomb from the air without hitting civilians. It's so hard. That's that's really hard on them. That's Um, really hard on them. (laughs) And so, like, there is a kind of question of how did things get this bad, um if you really wanted to ask where the agency of the Palestinians is, as, you know, why did the Palestinians accept the Oslo Accords that have largely led to this situation? Um, Without going into it too much, essentially the uh, PLO, now Fatah, um, accepted a US-sponsored ruling position over its political rivals, over the territories, by accepting concessions Mm. on land, on refugee rights. Um, Edward Said described the Oslo Accord... um, he referred to the uh, fatuous solemnity of Bill Clinton's performance like a 20th century Roman emperor shepherding two vassal kings through rituals of reconciliation and obeisance. <laughs> um, the emergence of Hamas in Gaza has given a kind of uh, excuse to the Israelis, say, well, if we let Hamas do what it wants, then uh, they will kill every Jewish person in the world. Yeah which seems like a tall order for somebody who can barely fire rockets that actually hit anything. But uh, there's also a suggestion that I've seen in a couple of places that um, 
Israel pursued a similar strategy to um, the US, actually, in the Middle East, whereby they somewhat sponsored the rise of Hamas as a kind of antidote to the secular and kind of potentially more effective claims of the PLO, which mm-hmm. is a kind of secular political organisation. Um, but yeah, like you can see like the, the various agreements that have gone on you know, with the Oslo Accords and the Roadmap to Peace. You compare it to something like the Good Friday Agreement, which is actual power sharing. Like, it's not perfect, yeah. obviously, but like there's actual power sharing between yeah. two communities. Yeah. They tried to make sure that one community was not left out. Yeah. And, you know, it holds to a certain extent. You can't just take everything away from a people and mm-hmm. expect them to to lie down. Yeah. You know? You end up, in fact, with an is like it even transforms the Israeli state because suddenly the Israeli state in this era is holding on to land it conquered through war as well as administering areas with significant number of Palestinians that have nowhere to go. They've made it so that they can't leave, they can't stay. There's no real social effort. You can't raise a family there. You're just struggling to survive every day. The only thing that they're free to do in the conditions that Israel has put upon them is to house empty buildings that have legitimate military targets in them. Yeah. Um, Israel, the, the question of refugees, there's around 5 million uh, Palestinian refugees uh, living in, in other countries. Um, the Israeli state says they can't possibly settle 5 million people in Israel or in the West Bank or anywhere like that. Um, but they were quite able to settle like half a million to a million Soviet immigrants, Soviet mm. Jewish immigrants in the 90s. They had no problem with that. In fact, they even gave newcomers money for rent while offering developer subsidies to build houses for this influx of Soviet Soviet Jewish immigrants. I read that, you know, I read that earlier on. It was like, wait a minute, weren't we told that like state-funded homes would destroy the economy? <laughs> like, fucking, one of my favourite things about, just as an aside, one of my favourite things is reading like some bare-bones social democratic measure yeah. that like, um, you know, okay, in this case, actually ethnocentric yeah. um, social democratic measure and people are like, this this is an economic miracle. Like people in this country are like, they have made the desert bloom by yes. buying houses for people. Um, the attitude of the Israeli state towards the Palestinians is perhaps best summed up by Arnon Sofa. He was a demogra- demographer at Haifa University who advised the government of Ariel Sharon in 2004 to withdraw Israeli forces from Gaza to end the occupation, seal it off and kill anyone who tries to break out. He told uh, in an interview to the Jerusalem Post in 2004, quote, When two and a half million people live in a closed-off Gaza, it's going to be a human catastrophe. Those people will become even bigger animals than they already are today, with the aid of an insane fundamentalist Islam. The pressure at the border will be awful. It's going to be a terrible war. So if we want to remain alive, we will have to kill and kill and kill. All day, every day. The only thing that concerns me is how to ensure that the boys and men who are going to have to do the killing will be able to return home to their families and be normal human beings. Yeah, so that brings us up to the current day. Um, there's several factors, like, we've seen... How many like how many times have you seen the kind of Israel, like, like Palestinian situation happen in a way that grabbed your attention? Again, it feels, it feels wrong to say yeah. it's a flare-up or an intensification. I guess intensification okay. would be all right, the, but... The thing is, there's, like... It's mentioned occasionally 
on the news. But the last time I can remember it being properly covered was probably 2014, to be honest. Yeah. Like, when there. they were dropping white phosphorus. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is not allowed. Um, and especially not dropping it on houses. It's not allowed. To, you're not allowed to fire it at beat at, like, soldiers. Yeah. Let alone an open-air prison. Actual civilians. Yeah. Um, but that was probably the last time that I think they gave, they spent a lot of time, as much time as they're doing now mm. on it. But, like, it, yeah, it's, there's always, like, this happened. I'd, yeah, I'd say it's, like, the last 20 years I can think of, like, like four or five specific mm. times when it's gotten especially, especially bad. Um, I think 2006 was the worst. That was um, Operation something or other, they called it, which... Cast led? Maybe that's right. That that kind of involved. I mean, it involved dropping bombs on Gaza, but it involved. Um, it's where they tried to take out Hezbollah in yeah. southern Lebanon. Also, another area that they occupied, by the way, for yeah. about fifteen years from the mid eighties. That everyone sort of forgets about. They literally occupied another country. Um, but they, yeah, they tried to. They they tried to like um, kill kill Hezbollah. Whatever the the objectives are for these things hmm. they tried to destroy Hezbollah and got their fucking asses handed to them um, but I'd say yeah it's it's been slowly kind of well, it's been ramping up yeah like I saw Regev um, Mark Regev who used to be the ambassador here who used to see on the TV all the time talking hmm. about how this is all justifiable for what like whenever there, there's something would happen hmm. um, but he's now an advisor to Netanyahu yeah so I saw him talking and he was saying we can't carry on doing um treating the symptoms we need to deal with the the root problem and that's why it'll have to be bigger this time i mean yeah it, genocidal rhetoric is nothing new from no. the israeli state and supports of israel um Not at all. they would like the palestinians to be invisible and to mm. go away but in order to do that they feel that they have to do some first steps first Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I mean, there must be some logic. I know there is a logic behind this, but the kind of speed of it, I think, is what gives them, or I mean, I say speed, I mean comparative like slowness yeah. of it is the kind of thing that gives gives them the kind of culpable, deni- like plausible deniability that they yeah. are doing this. But there is not a single step that the Israeli government has taken in the last 20 years, I can think of, that moves anything any closer to any kind of solution people yeah. were like well we still hold out hope for the two-state solution one side holds all the cards why yeah. would it give that up yeah why would it give any of that up yeah um i think there's a couple of things different this time that i can that i can see um first off like netanyahu uh, benjamin netanyahu the israeli prime minister has been in power for i think 10 or 15 years he's like the longest serving israeli pm um has like right wing, hard right wing. Oh yeah. Um, head of the Likud party. Um, has been having a torrid time of it. In the last two years, Israel's had four elections. They cannot. They have like a, a PR system. They cannot get a coalition government together. Um, he's currently failing to form his fourth coalition government. He's failed so badly that um, in 2019 he even made it a plank of his policy to annex the Jordan Valley which is a significant portion of the Area C that we were talking about before. Yeah. Like, explicitly, explicitly an act of conquest. Yeah. He just kind of said the, quiet part, said the quiet part loud. Did he have it in, like, manifesto leaflets? He had it in... It was part of his policy that if he was elected, he would annex 
another person's territory. That, admittedly, Israel has controlled for the last 40 yeah. years, but um, it was all of that in order to kind of appeal to the far right in Israel, which yeah. now you have to court if you're going to get into, um, into power. Um, even now, he's failed to get the requisite number of seats and failed to form a coalition. In fact, right up until this kind of most recent violence happened, um, the opposition leader was asked to try and form a coalition, yeah. you know, in the way that, that those kind like of Gantz. systems do. Huh? It's like Gantz. It was actually um, Yair Lapid, oh, okay. who has his own party called Yesh Atid, called There Is A Future, oh. which that's what that means. Um, and there's a deadline, I think, in the next month or so. Um, there was even talk of... Um, he's, he's been called, like, Israel's Obama... I think in the idea that he's actually just a flashy middle-class con artist, <laughs> it sounds like. But uh, he's like an ex-weatherman. Fantastic. <laughs> there was talk of uh, Yair Lapid forming a coalition with former uh, right party, former far-right parties who had been in the Netanyahu coalition. Hmm. But it seems that, oh, with the outbreak of hostilities, suddenly those far-right parties are really keen on Netanyahu forming it like a, yeah. a government of national unity in this time of crisis. Yeah. Very weird. Um, bear in mind, through all this as well, um, Benjamin Netanyahu is literally on trial yeah. for corruption, which if he gets prosecuted, he will be forced to stand down as Prime Minister. He's on trial right now for corruption, bribery and fraud. While doing all of this. Um, some other things that have changed around this situation. Um, there's a number of Arab countries that have uh, given diplomatic recognition to Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I say Donald Trump did. Hmm. I have absolutely no idea because this has been like a long-term like objective of the Netanyahu government is to they, they call it the outside-in strategy. So what you do is you all of those countries that refuse to recognize Israel, mm-hmm. you get them on side and then they are kind of duty-bound to uh stop recognizing the Palestinians, stop providing them with aid, stop yeah. supporting them. Um so that eventually the Palestinians again will have no outside support and will fade away from history. Hmm. Um, he's yeah, he's normalised uh, relations with the United Arab Emirates, uh, Sudan, Oman, and Morocco. And he's oh, apparently that's why the, um, at the protesters there was the inflatable effigy of the leader of the UAE of the Sheikh of which UAE, people were yeah. saying like they've made him look Jewish because he's recognised Israel. Hmm. And it's like no, that just looks like him, but with horns. Horns aren't. An anti-Semitic trope, are they? Not when they're on a non-Jew. Not when they're surely. on when they're on the leader of an Arab country, surely. <laughs> but oh well. Um, what else is different this time is that um, resistance to what the Israelis are doing isn't just coming from um, the West Bank and Gaza. Hmm. There have been, as we said before, there have been a number of protests in. Uh, Israel itself mm-hmm. um, among Israeli Arabs and people who are pro-Palestinian in, in Israel um, our Israeli Arabs make up about 20% of Israel's population so mm-hmm. they're quite a significant minority um, and they're increasingly staging demonstrations against their own unequal treatment Treatment, you know, it's still illegal for them to marry somebody who lives in the West Bank and Gaza okay. and bring them over um, there are various laws against um, commemorating the Nakba which is the 48 dispossession of yeah. Palestinians. Um, and it feels like, yeah, he's Netanyahu's kind of whole strategy has been one of pressure. 
you wall everything off, you wall off the West Bank, you wall off the, the Gaza Strip, you keep everyone focused on Iran, and you slowly hope that the kind of Palestinians will, will die out. Um, but apparently he's gone a bit too far, and now, you know, Arabs have been mobilised in Israel itself. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, um, the discourse around <laughs> all of this was, was very fun. It's been yeah. wall-to-wall, actually. I think it's, yeah. it's been this and Keir Starmer, and that's it for, like, a week. Yes, because they don't want to talk about anything else. Yeah. You know, they don't want to talk about, like, Rona. They're very much bored of Rona. They're like, I mean, do you notice the, the change in how Rona is being talked about when they moved the coronavirus updates from BBC One to the news channel? Yeah. When they were like, we're done now. Very much in the same way, like I was telling you before we started recording, the um, um, the arresting Deliveroo drivers and um, Uber Eats drivers now, because like, as we come out of lockdown, certain things aren't needed anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, we'll go back to the other thing, which is like, let's attack the left and put a load of ideas of what we think the left are. Out, and out there, the, just the to Palestinian really make flag sure. is the Hamas flag. <laughs> It was very weird. Like, I watched TV news yeah. for the first time in ages. I don't watch the news on television. I don't watch the BBC News Channel. For the same reason that I can't really, our partners have banned us from watching any of these <laughs> yeah. things. I will watch NHK, which is the Japanese English language, um, mm. like, state TV channel, because it is literally for babies. Yeah. Um, and occasionally sumo. And occasionally for high-flying businessmen. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, like, the... The difference, I, wouldn't, I don't know whether it is difference, I don't have anything specific to compare it to other than other news events, similar events that happen in other parts of the world. Yeah. But almost every news outlet now reports, like, Israeli aggression in the passive voice, right? Yeah. Just both sidesism to, and it's, yeah. it's, the thing is, it's not even both sidesism. It will be yeah. something like, oh, Palestinians died in airstrikes, but Israeli were killed in rocket attacks. Yeah, it, you know? um, they're talking about it in the same way they talked about um, the war, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. That, you know, it's it, like, oh, it's sad, but, you know, what else do you expect? Yeah. You know, like, Israel targets infrastructure, Hamas launches a barrage. Yeah. You know? Literally, the only difference that I can see in everything that I've read between, like, right-wing or left-wing press, mm. for whatever that means, is that it seems to be the order in that they put the byline. Mm-hmm. Like it's Israeli citizens murdered, Palestinians died as yeah. Israeli airstrikes hit Gaza or whatever. Mm. That's literally the only thing, right? Just an example. Here's the Guardian, right, on the 12th of May, mm-hmm. a few days ago. Um, Israeli jets and Palestinian militants have traded fresh airstrikes and rocket fire. Won't lie, that's not a good trade. No. If I were the Palestinians, I would take back that trade. Yeah. <laughs> um, What's that? Do you think, like, I know it's like the discourse in the media about these kind of things has changed a lot in the last, like, five, probably ten years. But definitely recently. Like, you know, like, there's a, there's a, about, there's like a, there's the Bala Murphy so... stuff that, um, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. that, um, they don't refer to people being murdered. They refer to people dying. Yes, dying. Passive voice. They yeah. died and then this other thing happened. Yeah. It's a small point, but I think it does... It's It gets stretched to like ludicrous things. Like I saw like an ITV news, hmm. right? And it was like like something like, paraphrasing, chaos tonight as Israelis take shelter. And it's like, it's like fucking 600 Palestinians are dead. Hmm. 
It is not at all equal. It is not a good... No. If you're trading, it's not a good trade. Mm. Not a good deal. Um, yeah, this this Guardian article was so strange. There was a, just a couple of things that really stuck out to me. It was like, one of the lines was, one person was killed and two injured after an anti-tank missile struck a vehicle patrolling near the border between Israel and Gaza. Right? Okay. So this was a, an Israeli casualty. Yeah. An anti-tank missile, right, okay. A vehicle patrolling the border... So yeah. would that be a military vehicle by any chance? Yeah. That's that's not quite the same. I mean, you still report soldiers dying, but I think soldiers dying as opposed to civilians is a different category. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, and yeah, like they continue, like the death toll in Gaza has reached 48. This was several days, probably about a week ago now. The death toll in Gaza had reached 48. Six people in Israel have been killed. And it's like, I know it seems simple enough, but you hear that repeated yeah. in outlet after outlet. You know, Palestinians have a death toll. It's yeah. just a number that gets projected upwards. Israelis are the victim of malice. Yeah. They are murdered. They are killed. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen much um, on the numbers injured mm. in Gaza either. But I did see the thing that they were counting anxiety as an injury. In Israel. Yeah, that was that was really, really maddening. It was like six people injured, including six people for anxiety. Yeah. I'm sorry, no. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, yeah, not when this, like, in this. No. <laughs> it's like, um, And so, yep, naturally, uh, the online reacted. Um, a lot of this time, a lot of, um, from the pro-Israeli side, a kind of... Uh, Here's the side of the story that you don't see. Here's what doesn't get reported. The idea as well that there is a like concerted effort, that they are the weaker side mm. in the press war, in the propaganda oh, war, yeah. and that their stuff doesn't get reported when you've got yeah. every single paper towing this very particular oh, line. Oh, yeah. For, well, for example, like what I said about Mark Regev, I know who the, ambas- I know who the former ambassador from Israel is. Mm. I don't know who speaks for the Palestinian people. In Gaza, to, that's in, invited they, onto Newsnight. There's, a, there, I mean, supposedly there's a peace process, and there is a Palestinian authority with yeah. um, Mahmoud Abbas as the yeah. But who's the, the head, one who's, who goes onto Newsnight to talk? Yeah. Um, some hot takes um, that reflect basically the broad range of pro-Israeli arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, First off, Israel has a better economy, so therefore it's allowed to do all these things. Um, someone compared Israel to Saudi Arabia and Yemen, you know, with yeah. the bombing of civilians. And someone replied, the Saudis are in a war that has killed over 350,000 people. They have no startup or innovation culture and total disregard for human rights and democracy. I haven't bought a single app from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Why would I ever support them? Um... Like, there's the usual kind of, like... Also, there's probably a lot of Saudi money in tech startups. I imagine there is a significant amount of Saudi venture capital in startups. Yeah. (laughs) But it's like the idea that that's an excuse. Yeah, that's an acceptable thing. They're no use to the global economy. (laughs) There was a lot of furore over um, a video of a a 10-year-old Palestinian girl who had been bombed out and saying, like, oh, Israel hates Muslims, and really getting into a, like, oh... It's not a war on Muslims. How dare you? That's a fucking like war on terror era yeah. like trope of yeah. like this is not a war against Muslims. This is a war against violent terrorism. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You just, like, Israel just destroyed our home. Yeah. 
Yeah, electric a child. <laughs> um, a lot of action in the football, the arena of football. Um, okay. Mohamed uh, El Naini, um, who's an Arsenal player, held up a Palestinian flag after a match, and the board of deputies complained to their sponsor hmm. about that this, you know, this was completely unacceptable. Again, it's like. Oh no, we just want a negotiated peace with the Palestinians. Yeah. But also if you show your flag show their flag, you are literally like, what did he do? Did killing he, did, Jewish he people. He spoke out in solidarity with Palestine. Yes. And did he wave a flag? He did. He didn't call for the murder of every Jew. No. Nope. He didn't call for the end of Israel. But the implicit logic behind that is that any Palestinian state means the death of Israel. Either yeah. two state or one state. It used to yeah. be just one state. Yeah. But now it's two state as well if, if they have a territory. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, even under the 67 borders would be incredibly difficult yeah. to actually establish a Palestinian state. But they just... They don't give a shit. Mm. Like, flushed with success over this particular strategy. Yeah. They do not care. Um... Yeah, there was another thing with uh, it was two Leicester fl- uh, players raised the, the Palestinian flag, and you know Stephen Pollard from the Jewish Chronicle saying like, "Oh, the FA needs to act to discipline them." For what? For what? <laughs> Genuinely, what? What do you think they've done? But oh god, the weird thing it's when it's one of those issues like, like when. Because I was hearing that on the radio this morning, because they were calling for like, there's like Nick Ferrari was saying like he hates it when like things are politicised. Yeah. Like oh. Sport. Yeah. Or like um, I think the other one you probably got it noted down is um at the march in London, a policewoman said free Palestine. Yeah. And he was like, you know, this this disgusting. Um, um, Rod Liddell was pretty funny because he said the quiet part loud. He said, "I would have been fine if she called for um success to Israel." <laughs> Like, oh God, Rod Little, you're so good at <laughs> just, just being all out there. Because he's never been punished for anything he's ever done. Um, but like the call for things to not be politicised. It's just so obvious what it's about. That you're never allowed to speak out against me, the winning side. Yeah. I, I don't want to hear your opinions because I'm not going to like your opinion. I like, there was a, so... There was like a, a an article by Giles Fraser in Unheard, mm-hmm. right? And Who's Giles Fraser? Giles Fraser was, if you remember the C of E guy who allowed Occupy to stay on the steps of... St. Paul's? St. Paul's, I think. Yeah. That is him. Okay. And has since become like a, um, like all Occupy people, every single one of them has become <laughs> rampant, anti-woke... Um, he's like the gentle anti-woke guy. He's the okay. he's the Anglican traditionalist. Okay. The Anglican like alt-right guy. Okay. He's going to give you a cup of tea when he does the alt-right talking points. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wrote this article saying political posturing won't save Israel. There is something hateful about politicizing such a complex conflict. And it's like, what do you think border disputes are? What do you think the status of people living in an area is? It's literally the first political... It's the first yeah. thing a state covers. Yeah. Is, is that thing. What? How? I hate it when, you know, war is politicised. <laughs> I hate it when politicians are politicised the most. <laughs> but the big thing is as well, all of these articles, and there's, there's been a lot. I could, yeah. go, I could go on for ages mm-hmm. reading excerpts from all of the articles I got. But every single one of them is like, look... Both sides have suffered tremendously. We need 
a two-state solution or, you know, we need everyone to come to the negotiating table yeah. and escalate. No violence. But also, they were absolutely right to do everything they did and the Palestinians should be extinguished from the... Yeah, they should from be ashamed the center of, of the, from the From the face of the earth. Um, yeah, that Joel's Fraser thing is like, the taking sides instinct is too great for many to resist. So to the idea that because of the overwhelming military superiority of the Israelis, they are necessarily and always the aggressors and Palestinians simply the victims. Moreover, if you think Palestine and Israel represent some sort of David and Goliath, respectively, get it? Then what about Israel versus Iran, Syria, Lebanon? A tiny democratic state set within a vast sea of enemies. So who is the big bully now? And to that, I would say, it's still literally Israel. Yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, Israel, like, bombed Syria like about 500 times in 2020. Yeah. Um, they consistently bombed Syria during the Civil War, yeah. bombed like Iranian groups in Syria. It literally, they, he mentions Lebanon, literally occupied southern Lebanon for 15 years. I like the, the instinct to take sides, you know, is strong and it's, you know, it's a wrong instinct to have. I would never take sides. Just ask my Israeli partner because he's married <laughs> to an Israeli and he's like, I wouldn't take sides. <laughs> it's like, it's like you, but you are. Why are you calling out the things that actually happened as opposed to the things that happened in my imagination, which have equal validity. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's as you say, it's like when they've got the, the kind of double thing going on, which is when things are simple, actually they're very complex. Yeah. When things are complex, they're actually very, very simple. It's all about good and evil and all that yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah. Um, I also think in some ways, like th- this whole thing has... It's different, I think, because of social movements like Black Lives Matter and like mm. the increased visibility of that and acceptance of that. Mm. You got like you know fucking Nike. Yeah. I know it's cynical, but you've got yeah. like Nike advertising for Black Lives Matter and yeah. highlighting certain issues around like mm. um, Black Lives Matter and the police and, and abolishing yeah. police and all that kind of thing. And it's a very, it's a, it seems to be a very different thing because you can't ignore something with that visibility. So yeah. that's why whenever you have to go on and defend Israel in this yeah. in this manner. You have to kind of um, say, "Oh no, actually, it's far more complex than like um, African Americans in America." Yeah. It's completely different. Completely yeah. different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. I have noticed a difference in. It's weird. It's hard to to pinpoint it because it's like it's important to remember that Ed Miliband was considered to be. Um, too much for like Stephen Pollard and yeah. the Jewish Chronicle and like Ed Miliband's mother is a pro-Palestinian activist yeah um, so we did used to live in a time where people were more nuanced about it and didn't just scream anti-Semitism I mean calling for sanctions on Israel is mm. not an out of the box position and yet yeah. there is literally that currently there is a an anti-BDS rule going through yeah. Parliament about like public bodies not not being literally not being allowed to support BDS. Yeah, but like after the last five years of how poisoned anything to talk to do with Israel has become because of Corbyn and the rabid hatred of Corbyn, it genuinely surprised me, and I thought it's actually a genuinely good thing that when a liberal like John Oliver refers to it as apartheid and as refers to the bombings as a war crime that shows a very positive cuts through comparing it to american war crimes i think that that's that that is important to see like 
that, you know, <clears throat> shit lips are saying it, as opposed to just us weirdo it's, nobodies. It's, it's not just coming from a tradition within the left. That has yeah. been, you know, it's got a long, long history yeah. of Palestinian solidarity. It's got mm. a long, long history in the left. It's because we're poisoned Celts. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Actually, it's really weird. I've been thinking a lot about that, actually, and I was trying to think of a way of discussing it on the pod, because, like, recalling kind of the Labour anti-Semitism thing yeah. is almost impossible when you're faced with this, because I think that, like, it feels wrong to, like, use this long-running, like, human rights atrocity in this in this whole situation to discuss, like, the fate of an opposition political tendency <laughs> in the UK. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't really compare, like, <laughs> me being really, really sad at Corbynism going away. Yeah. Kind of doesn't really compare with having, you know, white phosphorus poured into your school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, I definitely, definitely felt that same like link, that same feeling, mm. like browsing things that were, were being said and mm. analysing rhetoric and, and the discourse in, in a way that like really felt like it was designed to deter bystanders rather than necessarily gain support for, oh, yeah. for Israeli like, um, actions. You see the actions of the newly returned Nasha Jew account Ah, uh, yes, yeah. People like, is it like Ewan Phillips and his ilk, they're not, they're not trying to fight anti-Semitism. Mm. They're trying to browbeat you into never talking. Yeah. That's the point. They're trying them. to scare That's why, people. like, Stephen Pollard call, like, calling for people to lose their jobs yeah. if they've waved a flag yeah. and shit like that. It's not... To do anything it other is, than it to... is to deter someone who might be wavering because it is the people who are wavering who would make a difference in this when they can see exactly. the obvious injustice of what's what's yeah. going on. Yeah, when you know, when people quite rightly see Israel bomb the only place in Gaza where they can test for Corona. Yeah. Um, and people go, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> and they want people not to not to say that out loud. Yeah. It was it was weird. I was just I was trying to think of the ways in which the mechanics of it kind of um, like matched up because like there were kind of like two main areas like when there were charges of anti-Semitism made. There were like two main like tactics, right? Hmm. So the like the first one was like logical centrist attack, like it's tropes. Yeah, it's oh, blood is an ancient anti-Semitic trope. Therefore, yeah. you can't use it, which I've seen. Yeah, I saw them discussion. say that you know to, to refer to Israel killing anyone is blood libel. Yeah, it's like it's and I kind of that's kind of the same. It's the same tone as saying like, well, actually, uh, you wouldn't even be able to do state aid even if we did leave the, the EU. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like that weird legalistic tone, as if it's yeah. not. It's not that these things are open up to interpretation. It's not as if these things are like, yeah. It's not as if these things are interpretations. It's as if they're actual established rules. It says yeah. in the rules that you cannot refer to horns, blood, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing, I remember it because it was, there was a lot of that with the mural. Yeah. Um, like, it was a rule that that was, that was Jewish people yeah. depicted in it and it was anti-Semitic. And actually, it was largely a matter of in, interpretation, I think. You know? mm. And that, that, that era of that kind of culminated with the adoption of the IHRA because that was, again, an actual set of rules that mm. required interpretation rather than something you just point to and say, no, this, this is defined as anti-Semitic, you know? Mm. Um, and yeah, the, the kind of current 
version of that is well technically it's not a war crime uh, they actually have a right to defend themselves it's mm. it's in the law it's like it's been used forever but it, it just this time it really reminded me of that mm. like the other the other strand of that stuff is like the emotional appeal right mm. which is jewish people feel threatened yep you know under corbyn you couldn't point to a policy you no. couldn't point to a particular reason why jewish people were it was just a feeling it was lived experience all mm. of that all of that kind of thing you know anything that made the Jewish community feel scared is automatically an indictment of yeah. of Corbynism and, and left-wing behaviour in, mm. in, at large. And not even, like, specifically the Jewish community will be spokesman for the Jewish community. Yeah. And it was weird. Like, I remember that hurting a lot. I think we talked a lot less about that kind of stuff on the pod. Like, because mm. you felt weirdly, like, scared, but also, like, guilty because you had this idea. You knew that you weren't anti-Semitic, and mm. you knew you you knew that your political like thoughts yeah. weren't anti-Semitic. Like it was for the first time in most of our lives, I think most of us felt like we had this political outlet. Mm. And you were told that your proximity to it, just your proximity, put you at risk of being anti-Semitic, like yeah. a cancer diagnosis it's, or something. Um, it is. It's it's it was a weird situation to be in, and I'm there's still life in these people screaming this stuff. It'd be nice for them to stop. <laughs> but like one of the things that upsets me is like my father-in-law is gen is is genuine mm. like his fears yeah they're not based in reality no i think that, um, like, and like like this the like the actions of people like the, the labor against anti-semitism and the nasha jew account like mm. their actions are abhorrent like like on a person to person basis that you know they are disgusting people doing disgusting things but like having people that you know be made to be afraid of something that isn't there it's like it's a re like i'll hate them forever these people (laughs) yeah i mean don't like everyone you know make no mistake like the jewish community were the victims of this as much yeah as like any left winger, you know, yeah. like they're not responsible for that media conspiracy. It was they were the victims of it. They yeah. were told time and time again that you know Corbyn was a threat, and you know they're told now and like even now that Israel's indistinguishable from the fate of all Jews yeah. everywhere. You're not really British. You belong in Israel, and that almost like it, it kind of goes even further to that that like if you don't have a state you are some kind of disgusting rootless cosmopolitan yeah like it literally uses anti-semitic tropes and like it happened with uh, all of the people who um said that uh, oh anti-semitism is punching up right and you know redistribution of wealth is is yeah. anti-semitic like i you know i think that though the people who said that genuinely believed it like the fact that it was profoundly anti-semitic didn't matter because they thought that they were appealing to their political allies, you know, mm. the kind of philo, the philo-Semites. Mm. Because Truly they, virtual. Yeah. They like the idea of the Jewish people as a, <clears throat> as a like, model ethnic minority that have this, like, race-based genius for capitalism. Mm. They like that. Like, the trope of Jews being rich for them was a triumph because it means that their system worked. Yeah. Oh, look at this. They did so well. Yeah. They have this particular genius. They've done it so well. Um, and it's that same impulse that, like, people, like, a ruling class takes to, like, instrumentalise the people who... In- instrumentalise the northern working class who, for fucking decades, they've been, 
looking down on and spitting on and making fun of, and now they're suddenly moral exemplars of like patriotism and independence and fucking traditional values, whatever yeah. that is. They do not give a shit who they instrumentalise. No. It doesn't matter, like people of colour, um, LGBT people, they'll do anything with anyone to resist demands from below, mm. you know? I think the reason why this is this is different as well from the kind of reaction to Corbynism was with with Corbynism. I think you could only really respond to a thought experiment. There mm. there was no material Corbynism. I mean, you could say Preston and places like that, but there was no material Corbynism. They weren't in power. Yeah, you know, there were no policies you could point to. Everything that they were arguing against was an analogy. Yeah, or a, a, an example, or like your worst fears. Yeah, tracked to the end of their theoretical development. This is not a theoretical problem. This yeah. is an actual thing that is happening. Yeah. You cannot analogize it. You like it's almost like why I understand the apartheid um, reference, but I don't think it's necessary. No. This, this historical event is unique, as all yeah. historical events are, and you can point to specific things, yeah. and you can see it in the defense every time. Uh, a pro-Israeli voice tries to make that defence. They're always funneling you into different directions. It's like, well, well, you can't do it until you talk about Hamas. Yeah. You can't do it until you talk about rocket attacks. Mm. And then, you know, like, oh, you can't look. Israel's, like, got LGBT rights. You can't, yeah. you can't get rid of that. We have to talk about that. We yeah. have to talk about, you know, democracy, Iran, terrorism. Always trying to focus you on something else other than the actual fact on the ground, which is they are dispossessing an ethnic minority yeah. in a way that counts as ethnic cleansing. Yeah. There's um, I think it's, it the response to it has been different this time compared to other times Israel has done stuff, because it has been harsher. Yeah. And the condemnation from just normal people and like the march in London was pretty big, because you have to be a Luke Akers to look at pictures of that many dead children, and not care. <laughs> He went I think it's life. justifiable. Yeah, you think you think that because it's an empty house with a legitimate military target, that it's okay, mm. and it's profoundly not. Mm. And it, these aren't these aren't questions to be debated. If you hit a hospital, it doesn't actually matter if it has military targeting. You are not allowed to hit that hospital. Yeah. If you are killing civilians because you are trying to get at a target, you are killing civilians. That is a war. Those are things. Yeah, the same like oh, Hamas use human shields, and at no point. In the history of everything, is like, oh look, they've got a human shield. Better shoot the human shield. <laughs> that's that's not a thing. There's um another thing that um I know it's like a tangent, but like hmm. the bringing up of LGBT rights in Israel. Yeah. Um, and uh, using that to have a go at anyone who is gay or trans or anything or on the on the in the LGBTQ world. Mm. who is supportive of the Palestinian cause, saying like, oh, but you know, you wouldn't be safe there, you know, go to the Arab world, blah, blah, blah. Mm. This notion that solidarity is a transaction. It's a, you know, you do this, then you get that. It's like one of the more, like, insidious and poisonous ways I've noticed that capitalism has really warped the brains of so many people. Yeah. Including supposed liberals. It's that ultimately it can it can co-opt everything. Yeah, but like I'm sure like oh maybe they maybe they were, but was the idea that solidarity was transactional a thing in the seventies? Would people have said like, you know like um, actually they probably did. It's like it's hard to tell with like the Pride film, 
But like, what if the lesbians and gays support the miners? They didn't go there to help the miners in the hope that the miners would then support gay rights. No, they did it because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. That they would, that, I mean, I think largely because those movements came about in the context of much stronger and more vibrant socialist movements. Yeah. With, you know, exceptions. But those things could not be talked about outside of those struggles. Mm. The struggles were the same mm. because you were struggling against a particular type of capitalist subject or, or uh, capitalist subjectivity that made you into the thing that you were. Whether you were a minor, whether you were gay, whether you were a person of colour, yeah. it made you into those things. And so those things were in, in, inseparable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, speaking of like transactional stuff, it's like I always think that's a big mistake as well people make when they talk about how they talk about Israel and they talk about pro-Israel voices and then they talk about it in terms of like they've been paid yeah. as if without the money that Israel's actions are would naturally be punished and would be yeah. would represent this like natural arc towards justice mm. and then suddenly Israeli money came in and disrupted it or whatever yeah. it's like do you think they wait around waiting for Israeli bribes before they say anything no, it's like you'd they have to pay Luke Akers to say anything. They fucking love Israel. They aren't being paid to think. They they absolutely love it. Just, like you couldn't, you couldn't pay labor against like labor against anti-Semitism enough yeah. to be the way that they are. Yeah, you can see it in like particularly Tory politicians. Eyes like Priti Patel. You can see it in her eyes when she talks about Israel. They fucking oh, yeah. love, they love it. It's like well, it's a democracy. But it's race-based. It's surrounded by enemies. You've got like snipers in every fucking shopping mall. You've got specific roads for only the good people to use. You've got like burly IDF soldiers manning walls around significant portions. You've got almost all of your military pointed inwards, by the way. Like yeah. something like fifty to seventy-five percent of the IDF is just stationed in the West Bank. It's about a quarter deals with like um, Syria, Lebanon, yeah. Iran, all those areas. Um, yeah, you've got like this ready-made enemy. You've got the ever-present threat of attack. There's this grand narrative that you're a civilizing force in an area of deep barbarism. Yeah, like they might have grown up on bourgeois values, but they've got full feudalism running through them. They want to be able to do that again. Mm. You know, they're in fucking heaven. Um, and yeah, like you've got you know your, yeah your liberal side the the. Labour Party members who love the idea of Israeli socialism because it's their favourite kind of socialism, extinct. <laughs> um, and yeah, all it does is serve to harm people. Mm. Yeah, this, this, like the defence, like the, the deepest kind of defences of, of, of the existence of Israel and of Israel's actions mm. um, rests on this kind of deeper sense. Because we can talk about like war crimes and international law, but like, it's the thin end of the wedge of nobody caring about that stuff anymore. Yeah. The Geneva Conventions and all that kind of stuff. Defense of Israel often rests on this kind of sense of deeper justice, the idea that the history of the Jewish people of centuries of persecution and genocide could finally end only if they had a state. This is yeah. a particular brand of Zionism that says only a state can do this. Only a fully armed state can do this. Mm. Only a nuclear armed state. Only one that specifically dissolves other ethnicities away from its demographic makeup. And it demands a world emptied of Jews, except mm. for the ones who live in that one nuclear-armed state with guns pointed at everybody, mm. a state full of ethnic chauvinists 
ruling over a population of slowly dwindling natives. Yeah. You know, it's... I don't believe... I, I don't believe... The, the main demand is that is often that you believe in this particular strand of Zionism's mission. Yeah. And you don't have to. You don't... No. I, I don't have to. I don't have to accept that Israel as a state has the right to exist. States don't have rights. Hmm. The people do. The people hmm. who live there have rights. And the most common criticism you can think of is that, oh, people are singling out Israel. Why aren't they treating that? I can think of no other country, other than probably the US, that's so often spoken of as essential. Like, yeah. That's singling it out. Yeah. And that, like, yeah, the essential part of that is the state formation, not the lives that are contained within it. It's not the lives of the citizens, which are actually essential. Yeah. They're talking about like the political arrangement, the ethnic supremacism. They're talking about the state itself. Mm. That's the stuff that's essential to the kinds of politicians who would like this this moral order based on conquest, expropriation, and an eternal racial hierarchy. Mm. And, you know, when does that ever harm Jews? <laughs> uh, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to cut my